Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory and even characterizations, all came together over time. They were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing it and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. In 2022, there was an enormous amount of new Star Trek, and Doug, despite co-hosting a Star Trek podcast, watched very little of it. What he did end up watching was a show called Strange New Worlds, Paramount Plus' series about the adventures of Captain Pike and crew, starring Anson Mount as the head of an ensemble cast, is almost determinedly traditional in its style and structure. Episodic adventures on new planets, albeit with character arts stretching from week to week, with each week highlighting the experience and perspective of a different member of the cast. There's a lot of different ways to make a Star Trek show, but Strange New Worlds is definitely, unapologetically, one of them. This week, we're going to discuss Strange New Worlds, its concept, its ambitions, its successes, and maybe some potential room for improvement. Welcome back to the Mirror Universe podcast. I'm Adam Prosser. And I'm Douglas McDonald Norman. Hello and g'day. <laughs> Hello to all. So, uh, Douglas, how have you been? I've been very busy with work, um, which, and I'm going to keep being very busy with work until the grave. But I have actually had a really pretty fun time since we last recorded many, many months ago. I went to the United States on a holiday. Fun country to visit. I can't imagine why you'd live there. How have you been, Adam? <laughs> I've been fine. Uh, I got a dog. Um... There's been uh, various uh, summer vacations and so on. Uh, nothing as exciting as going to the U.S. Uh, why do you say that it's, uh, you wouldn't want to live there? Not that I necessarily disagree, just, just wondering. There's, the food comes in such quantities, and yet ah. it's so inedible, and it costs so much, and it just, everything just takes infinitely more effort than it should. And I spent a significant amount of my three-week vacation transiting from place to place in Newark International Airport, and the experience was bracing and cruel. I, uh, I did have a pretty marvellous time seeing places that I basically only knew from TV and from Earthbound. I got to go to New York City, which was amazing. I got to spend a very nice long weekend doing some writing in Burlington, Vermont, eating truly decadent pancakes and drinking truly sickeningly sweet lemonade, all of which is highly recommended. Um, and most of all, it was a really nice three-week vacation from the routine of being nothing but the job that I do, which brings us to, I suppose, the next topic 
of why doesn't Doug have time to watch Star Trek these days? <laughs> yes, uh, please let us know. I do want to jump in very quickly and oh, say that, and I say, and I have friends from New Jersey, but if your exposure to New, the United States was New Jersey, I think they would also agree that you're not necessarily getting the best view of uh, the United States. <laughs> what I could see of New Jersey from the airport, where I spent an enormous amount of time, looked all right. I would really have enjoyed leaving the airport and seeing New Jersey. <laughs> But uh, I did not. Yes. I spent the same time in the same United Terminal where I was born and where I feel like I'll be spending the rest <laughs> of my life. You're still there. You just don't realize it. Anyway, yes. Why is it, Doug, that you ha do not have time to watch Star Trek these days? So one factor is that I'm really busy. I have a job providing legal advice for money. Um, and that is the sort of thing which not only eats up all the time that I'm at work, but increasingly seems to eat up all of my mental energy when I'm not at work. But the other factor is this. I, as we've discussed, liked Discovery Seasons 1 to 3, and I liked Picard Season 1. Part of that was liking the things that they actually accomplished. Part of that was liking that even when they didn't hit their marks, they were taking big swings at things. But as someone who likes things, I have felt increasingly out of place on Twitter.com, a website which is not really about liking things. And the truly vitriolic reaction that Picard Season 2 received, and to a lesser extent the very lukewarm and muted reaction that Discovery Season 4 received, has made me hesitant to leap into both with both feet in circumstances where I feel like I am always tired and I am always always grouchy because of work. I am a Star Trek fan. I like to like things. I enjoy talking about how much I feel inspired or uplifted or moved by what I see on TV. My natural inclination is to be swept along by it. And something about the hell side has sort of sapped my will to leap into these projects given the... Uh, tone and volume of the negativity they've received. I am going to watch Discovery Season 4, and I am going to watch Picard Season 2, because I do really like Star Trek, and because I do co-host a Star Trek podcast, but something of the way in which they've been received has made it really difficult to commit to the time involved. I don't think you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> I think that um, first of all, I don't think I, I, I can't reasonably be saying oh you gotta watch discovery season four you gotta watch picard season two um while you're right that the uh the negativity is maybe a little much for both of those two things um in no way do they feel like brutally essential uh, i'm particular i'm a little disappointed in uh discovery season four because i thought it was getting some really good momentum in season three with the whole new the soft reboot uh, and I thought that they wasted a bit too much time on an arc in season four that I don't really feel paid off properly. Um, and, and Picard season two is more of the same problems and fewer of the good things about season one of Picard. And I, I am on record as liking a lot about Picard, even as a lot of it is terrible. Uh, it's a very, 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 it's what I like to call what the, I like to use the old fashioned term of a curate's egg. Um, <laughs> Because it's uh, there's some really good stuff in there to me, uh, and there's some really bad stuff. And season two of Picard was some good ideas, at, like maybe 
maybe four episodes, maybe three episodes worth of good content, and a lot of just bewildering choices that I don't feel like uh, are brutally necessary to watch. To uh, to to watch, uh, you should watch it for the same reason you should watch all the Star Trek as a co-host of a Star Trek podcast, and as I like to, as the same reason I eventually watched Enterprise and everything, uh, which I still find to be an interesting show, as you know, um, but interesting to talk about more than necessarily enjoyable to watch sometimes. Um, it's yeah. it's uh that's that's what Star Trek is to me sometimes. It's the thing where you watch it and it's always fascinating to talk about. I again, as I've said, I think Doctor Who fans uh come from the same thing where there's just a lot of stuff there to talk about, uh whether that's actually good or not. But it's still interesting to talk about. Um in a way that, for instance, I don't find Star Wars to be uh yeah. interesting to talk about. Look, I first things first, I love that you use the saying a curate's egg because I do too. It's just such a useful way of describing genre fiction. That's a bit good. And so much genre fiction is a bit good. Um, I called an academic paper that I was writing the curate's egg because it was about um, administrative decisions that are a bit good but a lot bad. And Jess, my wife, when I told her about the paper, was like, uh, what is a curate's egg? And I said, oh, it's from this punch cartoon from 1895. <laughs> and the level of mockery and derision I received for, oh, of course you know this reference. It's from a punch cartoon from 1895. Oh, God. Made, yeah, it made me acutely aware that it is not necessarily the world's most accessible reference. But I'm so glad you get it because it's something that we're... There's no better description for the state of modern Star Trek than an egg that has some good parts. And I think you're absolutely right that this also goes for Doc this especially goes for Doctor Who, which is like on the same level as Star Trek in terms of being one of my foundational franchises. Because if you consume Doctor Who from any era, it's very you have to take the good with the bad. And you have to be willing to reward, well, that would have been really good if it worked. And not to deduct <laughs> too many points for, well, that clearly didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> yes, precisely. I think almost all the things that Star Trek is trying to do are could have worked. I rarely see Star Trek and I'm like, that could never have worked. Um, they usually, oh, well, uh, uh, classic Star Trek, modern Star Trek, sometimes I don't really know what they're trying to do. But even then, there's interesting ideas. Anyway, um, let's, um, but there is a show that, a uh, live-action show, that is, because we know we both like Lower Decks, and I think Prodigy's uh, pretty strong. Uh, but um, th uh, there is one live-action show that is definitely working, uh, I think most people would generally agree, which is Strange New World, which uh, quality-wise is at a pretty high level uh, compared to the other two shows in terms of simply being a very good, watchable show uh, in terms of pure entertainment value. Good good and watchable sounds. It's like that Onion cartoon from years ago, if you remember, everyone criticizing the J.J. Abrams show for be uh, the J.J. Abrams movie for being good and watchable, and Star Trek got over that fast enough. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but it's uh, certainly a very good and watchable show, uh, Strange New Worlds. Um, so what's your general overall view of Strange New Worlds, uh, Doug? I really like it. It's really fun. It's a little bit begrudging because I've been trying to give so many points to Discovery and Picard for trying interesting things. Strange New Worlds isn't trying an enormous number of interesting things. And I wanted to deduct points for that because I feel like part of the vitriolic reaction that Discovery and Picard have received is because they have been willing to try and upset the apple cart. But 
I can't be too mad at it because it's a really fun show to watch with characters I really like that is generally pretty good on a week-to-week basis. And that has been, regrettably, not in abundant supply. Um, I watched most of Strange New Worlds with my brother while I was in the United States, while we were in, on holiday in New York together. And just the experience of just being able to sit down with a good, solid, hour-long slice of margarita cheese pizza level TV was incredibly satisfying. I like Strange New Worlds and I am really way more invested in it than I thought I would be. Adam, do you like Strange New Worlds? <laughs> I do. I, I really wanted to be the contrarian who was out there going, Strange New Worlds is terrible. Picard and Discovery, for exactly the reasons you said, Discovery and Picard are trying something. Uh, for that matter, Sora, Lower Decks, and Prodigy. They are trying to be something new. This is something that every Star Trek show, whatever you think of it, has done. It has tried something new. And it, uh, ultimately, one of the biggest complaints about Voyager and Enterprise is that they retreat from the new things they're trying to do into an attempt at sort of comfort food trek. But even so, there's enough left over from what they're trying to do and trying to be good, and Enterprise sort of shifted gears eventually, uh, that, you know, you have to give them that credit. You, you don't watch a Star Trek show and go, oh, this is just the same as I've seen before. This is the first Star Trek show where it's like, well, this is the Star Trek show we've seen before, essentially, uh, in terms of its basic premise. But I just can't... Re- I, I, it's not... It's not uh, my brain feeling fuzzy, nostalgic feelings. It really is a better executed show than the other two live-action Star Treks that we have right now. There's really no getting around it, unfortunately. Oh, I wish absolutely. I could say otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could say... Part, like I say, part of me wants to be like, no, it's just my my easy... I'm going for the easy, the easy buzz of nostalgia instead of something that's maybe more challenging, in a sense, with Discovery Picard. Uh, and maybe it is. Maybe the makers of Discovery are g- brilliant in a way that nobody actually understands right now and will eventually see in, in retrospect. Uh, but, uh, I, 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 like I say, there are lots of good ideas in there. Uh, but, yeah, I think Strange New Worlds is just broadly a better executed show. There's really no getting around it. Yeah. Uh, each episode works as a slice of entertainment in its own right. Um, as much as it doesn't take as many big swings i think it has a really really good sense of the things that it can carry out and the things that it can't and it's just a show that is far easier to just watch hour on hour without necessarily having a degree of investment in watching all of it um as as much as it is in some sense very traditional and as much as it is in some sense, I think, aimed towards a market that's looking for traditional flavor Star Trek, it's a show that I would much more readily recommend to non-Trekkies because it doesn't necessarily require as much investment in you have to watch the whole thing to get some sense of a me- to get some sense of payoff. Uh, yeah, I can I can uh, vouch for that because I do know a few people who very explicitly said they had not watched Star Trek since uh, at least, like, Enterprise or Voyager, and in some cases not since TNG, uh, and weren't Star Trek fans, and they said, well, you know, everyone's saying I gotta check out Strange the World. I did. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Um, so, uh, and, and other people who are like, I've been on and off about, um, discovering Picard, but oh man, I really liked Strange New Worlds. Um, uh, you know, and I, those who've tried Lower Decks tend to like it as well. Um, you know, discovering Picard are the more, uh, it's, it's kind of funny that Picard felt like it was the big event star trek show in a sense because it was the big nostalgia reunion tour and it ended up being in no way uh 
ca- uh, pandering to uh, fuzzy feelings of nostalgia. Again, that's the thing. Whatever you want to say about Picard, it was not just, hey, look, everyone, it's Picard doing Picard things again, and he's back on the Enterprise, and all the old cast is back, and blah, blah, blah. And of course, there's some of that, but it literally introduces a whole new cast. It brings a whole new paradigm. It does all kinds of crazy new things. Uh, with uh, Star Trek. Now, it looks like season three of Picard is actually going to be that getting the band back together uh, episode. Um, and even Picard season two, which brings in Guinan and Q, weirdly marginalizes them and doesn't do much with them, which I was very surprised at. Um, they actually have some interesting ideas for what they're going to do with Q. Anyway, I won't, not to get onto that uh, topic, but anyway, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange that that's the that strange new worlds is the let's give this to the. Uh, the uh, the normies and uh, that discovering Picard have become a bit more for hardcore Star Trek fans uh, in that sense. But uh, yeah, Douglas, you did want to talk about the episodic nature of Star Stranger Worlds, I think, a little bit more hmm. uh, based on what you were saying earlier. Well, it's interesting in the age of streaming that it is as episodic as it is, that so much of the engine of the show is visiting new planets or visiting new settings and having adventures in a relatively self-contained sort of manner arising from the mores or quirks of, or scientific features of whatever place or phenomenon we're visiting that week. In some respects, obviously, that's intensely traditional. That's how TV was made, in large part, outside soap operas, until the age of streaming. But that remarkable conservatism, I think, is actually relatively radical in the new age in terms of defying some of the tropes and norms of how we make TV and how we consume TV now. Um, it, I, It's, on one sense, a reactionary move. But maybe we've reached an era in which um, what was conservative is new again. And maybe we're going through a new cycle in terms of how we make and how we consume TV. I think that... Strange New World's merger of a fairly traditional storytelling style with a strong commitment to character relationships and character arcs and a growth of how the characters regard each other from week to week is actually a really refreshing blend of the old and the new. Adam, do you like or appreciate the episodic nature of it? And do you think that it's a traditional or a relatively radical show in terms of how it's made? No, I, 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 yeah, I think that's right. I think it's really interesting uh, that, as you say, we're kind of now after this giant uh, binge watch streaming uh, model sort of took over. When would you say that was? Like 2015, 16, maybe earlier? It's all, everything before COVID is just a big blurry haze <laughs> of when I was young. And then everything yeah. since COVID has been, you know, my years of senescence and decline. I don't remember what years <laughs> things happened. Basically, basically, I think I would say that when Netflix right away started, when it started offering original TV programming, uh, they went with the streaming model. That was the that was a big deal for them, and um, that's where it really started to uh, the 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 uh, heavily serialized model start to take off. There were, of course, shows were heavily serialized before that, leading up to that. Um, uh, but uh, like HBO, especially, uh, was. A big uh, factor in that with something like the Sopranos uh, that was the turn of the century uh, but yeah we've I think Netflix is where we really started to see this idea of like oh it's a 12-hour movie or an eight-hour movie or something like that I think that's where we really got um, like that really became the new model 
not that we ever actually lost the serialized model. Uh, I think I mentioned this in another episode that um, uh, sitcoms never really abandon it. Even the most, even the stuff that's on um, Netflix is far more serialized than uh, any of the dramatic shows or genre shows. Uh, also, animated shows have almost always have almost consistently kept their. Uh, their uh, serialized nature, uh, which e- extends to Lower Decks as well, which even more so than S- Strange New Worlds is probably S- Strange uh, Lower Decks and Prodigy both uh, the most serial, uh, the most uh, episodic tracks. Prodigy is a little more serial. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Prodigy is a little more serial. Yeah, I know you haven't seen Prodigy yet, Doug. Uh, it's, it's a little more serialized, uh, but it is still like they go to a place every week. It's a little. It's it's what we would recognize as the discrete uh, stories. Um, and uh, I think that that was a discussion I, we were just having on Twitter uh, with Zach Handlin uh, just earlier today, actually, um, about that, like how that's, I think they're taking a step back and trying to uh, reevaluate what the right model is for TV. Um, actually, um, I believe Netflix just announced they're not going to do the binge dropping anymore. Uh, Amazon uh, has not been doing that, and HBO Max has not been doing that, and Apple Plus has not been doing that. They've been releasing them episode by episode every week. Uh, Disney Plus, of course. Uh, and the thing is, all those shows get a lot more buzz. People get a lot more, uh, pay a lot more attention to and talk about those shows more, at least on social media. It doesn't necessarily affect the ratings, but there's a, there's, there was a real sense with Netflix that the episodes would drop and then they'd be gone and you'd forget about the show until a year later when it came back out. Yes. Um, and that, uh, yeah, I don't think that's helped, uh, <laughs> I don't think that's helped Netflix specifically uh but that's binge versus the serialization model but uh i think um when you go episode by episode and uh present a bit more of a discrete episode i think that or i think that's what people want to watch uh and i think something like deep space nine i've said before is almost a perfect model uh for a balance because let's not forget it was frustrating back in the days of tv when everything would be resolved in half an hour to an hour and no growth would occur and everything would be more or less back to the way it was and and any continuity would be out the window people would their grandmother would die five times because it didn't matter because it was all for syndication that kind of thing um we did see an evolution in the 80s and then especially the 90s uh towards something that was that had a little bit more consistent continuity and even the simpsons is literally like in the 90s at a time when shows were starting to be more serialized, they made sort of a joke out of the fact that there was absolutely no continuity in the Simpsons. It made no sense whatsoever. Um, so uh, the, the, you have seen that shift. But I do think that ni- 90s model for TV is a very good one. There were a lot of very good models that you could look at in TV. Right? Uh, I really like Zach Hanlon. I subscribe to his Patreon. I admit that I should probably give him more money on his Patreon than I do. Um, the extent... And volume of his reaction to Picard season two has been one factor in why I've been a little bit hesitant to check it out. He's not been a huge fan of that show. Um, I think that I, I think it's really interesting to compare it to '90s TV and to compare it to um, Deep Space Nine in particular. That it's interesting that it Strange New Worlds adopts a slightly different model of serial as of continuity to how Deep Space Nine does it. In Deep Space Nine, as much as you have a lot of continuing plots from episode to episode, you don't have as many continuing character interactions in the same way. That being, well, the paradigm example for Strange New Worlds being the Spock and Chapel flirtation, which you visibly see evolving week to week to week, which you don't 
really have that many exact analogies for in previous Star Trek shows, which tend to be a little bit more stop and start. Even things like Worf and Dax's flirtation is something which happened a few times in season four and in season five until they became a couple, but you don't necessarily have the same fact of a relationship developing week to week like you do with Spock and Chapel. They've moved a lot of the serialized aspect from the broader narrative plot to how the characters regard each other, not just in terms of character growth, but an, a week-by-week character storyline. And that, I think, is a really interesting way of doing serialization. And to be honest, I think Spock and Chapel has been my second favorite thing about Star Trek to Change New Worlds. I think it's been delightful. Fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I guess I'm not as uh, huge on it as uh, you. I, there's been some very nice moments between the two of them. Uh, I, I guess I feel a little underwhelmed by that, and this maybe does tie into, uh, we're jumping ahead a little. Uh, you know, I think we can go back and forth on this, uh, things we like and things we didn't like. Uh, we don't want to just pile all the negative things at the end, so I, I think it's okay. Uh, it is it does create a bit of a problem in that you know it's never going to go anywhere. Uh, you know that Absolutely. Spock and Chapel cannot get together. Yeah. <laughs> they can't get together. Uh, and indeed, you know that seven years later, they're still going to be, Spock's still going to have this undercoit, or Chapel's still going to have this undercoited thing for Spock uh, if it's sticking to the, uh, you know, the continuity of uh, original series. Yes. Um, and this is, a, this is a problem with Enterprise, which as much flack as Enterprise got for introducing the infamous future guy in the temporal Cold War, um, I always thought that was very... I think I mentioned this in another episode. I actually thought... I, I saw why they did that, because it actually gets around the prequel problem because you're sort of saying well we know archer's going to go on to become successful and the federation's going to get founded and this and that and the other uh but we're actually dealing with this uh time meddling that's going on uh and that actually creates a wild card which makes you wonder what's actually going to happen um strange new worlds way of dealing with this uh is not as immediately impactful they have acknowledged it to in a degree via um uh pike's acknowledgement or knowledge uh for foreknowledge of his eventual uh death as it were um I, not actually his death but as we know uh, he thinks he's going to die which is, which is actually interesting death. yeah well that's the interesting thing because he does think he's going to die and he's not he's not actually going to die and in fact we know he ends up with something resembling in a charlie kaufman-esque way uh, a happy ending um but um you know he doesn't know that he just thinks he's doomed uh but uh, that and that is, I, I think that's almost an acknowledgement of the fact that the show is a prequel. Uh, it's a way of putting that on the, in the open, as it were, <laughs> for the characters. Um, and they've, and I've honestly been very surprised at the degree to which they've uh, gotten some good mileage out of that. I wouldn't have thought that was a very compelling plot or character hook, but uh, having him be this sort of doomed noble soul and struggling with that in various ways has been surprisingly interesting I agree. um in it, yeah it's not even not even as a as an arc just as a a thing where he has to deal with in various ways over the course of the show yeah no i completely agree with that on pike when i saw that they were bringing up the foreknowledge of the future thing again in the first episode of strange new worlds i was like okay i'll let you do this once but i really do not want to have this be something that weighs on him week on, on week and then it was and i was surprised by how into it i it, I became that 
I really, really, really loved the moment in Disco where Pike has that knowledge of the future and yet seizes the time crystal all the same. I think it is just such a perfect Star Trek moment and such a perfect illustration of Star Trek ideals. And I was worried that that would lose some of its force if that's going to be what we deal with with Pike every week. But in terms of presenting him as a man who knows that he is running out of time, a man who is conscious in everything that he does, that he has this destiny, that he has this responsibility, that sense that heavy is the head that wears the crown. I think it does a really interesting job of integrating what we know with what we don't, which contrasts with the Spock and Chapel stuff. That Yes, it, you're absolutely right that the fact that we know that in seven years' time, Chapel is going to be a lot less Australian and a lot less interesting. <laughs> um, and that this relationship isn't going anywhere. And that in a few years, they are going to have a relationship of warmth, but also chilly professionalism, rather than... And that Spock is still going to be with Tupring in the 2260s. I'm... Well, sort of, with, with in quote marks, I think, yes. but yes. With, uh, yes, within the legal sense, but not necessarily within the sense of the interesting, increasingly warm relationship that we see on the show. The fact that all none of this is going to go anywhere aside from the relatively static status quo we see in original series. I, I really have to put that out of my mind when I'm watching the love triangle on Strange New Worlds, knowing that it's not going to go somewhere particularly happy for any of the characters. But, so it's a difference with Pike, where you watch him really conscious of what's going to happen in future, and with Spock, Chapel, and T'Pring, where you really have to pretend that this is not a show that leads into the original series in order to enjoy it properly. But I can do that, because I'm a lawyer, and I try very consciously not to think about things for a living. And so I really, really, really enjoy that love triangle. And I'm not really looking forward to where it ends up, but I'm really enjoying the ride while it's going. Uh, that's Now, here's the thing. They've surprised us with Pike, so maybe they'll surprise us with Scott, Spock and Chapel. Maybe they'll find interesting things to do within the constraints of what they have. And again, uh, it, it should be noted there is a shift here between, like, uh, Discovery and the beginning of uh, Strange New Worlds was Pike sort of going, um, and, uh, well, the season we've had of Stranger World was Pike knowing that he was doomed, essentially getting the equivalent of a Shakespearean, you know, the three witches prophecy. Um, but the final episode of uh, the first season, uh, A Quality of Mercy, uh, change, shifts the dynamic quite a bit because he's literally uh, contacted from, by his future self uh, after he does make an attempt to change the future that he knows is coming to try to sort of have it both ways uh, to save the people he's supposed to save, but also to um, <clears throat> to um, uh, prevent himself from being uh, horribly disfigured in this accident. Um, <clears throat> and he's, his future self comes back and literally says, no, you can't do that because unfortunately it's going to uh, lead to a uh, very destructive, horrible war with the Romulans in a bit of an echo of yesterday's enterprise, uh, the next generation episode. Uh, and also, um, uh, you know the the implication now if i've if i've got this right i tried to think this through uh my impl the implication as i understand it is that um <clears throat> in the timeline we're used to pike took an assignment 
uh, possibly in a promotion to admiral or something, or at least at the very least he was grounded. Uh, and he was working on a station when this accident happened. Uh, in the timeline we're presented that he might end up in, uh, he's still a captain of the Enterprise. Kirk is not. And because he's the captain of the Enterprise, things turn out differently in the Romulans. Um, uh, the, the, the events of the original series episode, uh, Balance of Terror, play out differently and end in an act of full-out war between the uh, Romulans and the Federation. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so I think, the, I think that tracks. I think the logic is there uh, reasonably well, even though, oddly enough, they don't emphasize the specific mechanism by which uh, him writing this letter is going to end with Kirk as the Enterprise captain instead of him. And they are building up the possibility here that um, the, the, the idea that um, he's going to be like this Obi-Wan figure to Kirk, because he's going to know, oh, Kirk is going to be the captain, so it's my job to make sure he becomes the captain of the Enterprise. Um, like I'm going to be shepherding him to that role, which again is not the most promising development. It puts it into the, uh, you know, chosen one type of uh, venue, which we're not fans of. Granted, it's Star Trek. Time travel is a thing. That's not quite the same thing, but it does get into that general um, dynamic, and I'm not the most excited about that. Yes. But I will tell you, you know, there there are some. Anyway, sorry, Doug. You, you no, no, no. I was just saying. I, I I was just cheering you on. I'm interested in seeing where you're going with it. I completely yeah. agree. I don't. I think that Captain Kirk is an important character in Star Trek history. The idea that the galaxy hinges upon him being Captain of the Enterprise, or that he is somehow the fulcrum around which time revolves. I'm really. There's quite a lot of chosen ones in fiction. I don't really think that Captain Kirk needs to be one of them. He's a guy who... He's the right guy who was in the right job at the right time for the original series, making making it such that if some if Pike had been captain, he would... His fundamental difference in instincts with, with Kirk would have been a massive shift in galactic politics. I can see the logic behind it. But, no, yeah, I... I I am equally uncomfortable about the idea of chosen one mythology or that we are building up to the idea that, that, that Kirk has this heroic destiny to be fulfilled. So I cut you off. Continue. Uh, no, uh, that's, that's good. I, I will say this. Um, because one of the thing, reasons it's not as bad as the very... I, we recently... I have a group of friends. We watch movies of all calibers, including sometimes terrible ones. Um, <clears throat> and we watched the movie Aragon, uh, which is absolutely the most mediocre thing you'll slab of movie shaped product you'll ever see. Yes. And it uses, it, it made me realize, I, I, have you seen it? I have seen it. I think slab of movie shaped thing ought to have been on the poster. Yeah, exactly. And um, it really made me aware of how lazy the chosen one became as a plot device because it was literally well the reason everything's happening to you and the reason we have to keep saving your life and the reason we have to keep giving you stuff and helping you to move along is because you're the chosen one you're the chosen one so i have to come and sacrifice my life for you i have to give you this magic you have to bond with the dragon this has to happen this way because you're the chosen one it's an incredibly lazy bit of storytelling when it's used that way it doesn't necessarily have to be that bad but it was very it's become very lazy now i will say this one reason that star trek is separate from that or even something like star wars which is a little bit more reasonable about it, uh, quite a lot more reasonable about it, actually. Um, but even with Star Trek, we saw Kirk have decades of adventures 
uh, before even there were other Star Treks. Uh, we saw him do all these very important things on the show, and it just came organically out of the show. Captain Kirk being this great hero who solved a lot of the galaxy's problems. That was just something that happened. Um, and it, so he essentially, for all intents and purposes, earned it. So it might be fairer to say that instead of a chosen one, Kirk is Abraham Lincoln or, uh, you know, uh, Julius Caesar or maybe not Julius Caesar. I don't know. Uh, yeah. William the Conqueror. I don't yeah, know. No, uh, I, he's I, I, I see what you mean. Like Kirk uh, is the one who chose himself, that he is to some <laughs> sense a, self, a self-made man rather than it being that the entire universe was ushering him towards being in the right spot. It takes away some of his agency if it's just that um, this the way that history was always... If it is in some sense the way that history was always going to go or that he was the golden child who was shepherded towards this moment and sort of dragged along by history. Yeah, and I mean, the irony is that, of course, Star Trek did a very famous episode that was effectively about this from much more of a... Uh, time travel scientific deterministic perspective which is the city on the edge of forever which is not so much a mystical thing of oh you're the chosen one and the universe wants you it's so much as well things turn out a certain way because this person was here at this crucial time and that's just how history unfolded and it's not at all unreasonable to say within the Star Trek universe Captain Kirk is one of those people just as all these other you know Zephram Cochran is or all these other people so to view it from that if they if we continue to view it from that lens it's a lot more acceptable I think than if we start to say oh yeah Captain Kirk is the chosen one and he will eventually solve all of our smite our enemies and so so forth um yeah I actually want to mention, I'm uh, just, uh, this is silly, and I'm sorry I'm taking up a lot of time on this. Um, I, um, I, I, there's this, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the comic book series Astro City, Doug. Are you familiar with that at all? No. Um, My comic book knowledge is really deep in some respects and incredibly spotty in others. I have encyclopedic Mm -hmm. knowledge of um, James Roberts' run on Transformers More Than Meets the Eye. Uh, (laughs) But I have not read an enormous amount of Batman, for example. So deep, alternating deep and very shallow. And so I've never even read a page of Astro Astro City. Yeah. Astro City is a uh, tremendous comic. I I really enjoy it. Uh, You don't need to know anything about any other comic to read it. It's not, it is, in a sense, it's him writing a lot of uh, DC and Marvel superhero work with new characters that he's created. Um, uh, That's Kurt Buschak, the writer, and uh, um, Brent Anderson, artist, and Alex Ross, who does designs and covers. It's a really good series uh, that deals with a lot of... In many ways, he sort of takes, well, what if uh, that character... What if if I wrote that character and I could completely break the status quo and change things about them, what would I do? Um, He has a character named the Silver Agent who essentially tracks on to Captain America, or specifically the Silver Age version, the Marvel version of Captain America. Um, And um, he had a big moment... Early on in the series, they did introduce the idea that he was... um, He had been... Uh, memorialized having died in a way uh, there's a statue of him in Astro City that stands in the plaque says to our eternal shame and exactly what happened to him is not clear at that point that's from the, one of the earliest issues um, but we know that there was a character called the, uh, the Silver Agent and he has this sort of pall over him but he's also seen as a figure of hope uh, it's eventually revealed that he was uh, executed for a crime he did not commit that was engineered by a supervillain um, and um what we eventually learn is that um, he sort of, something weird happened. He vanished from his cell for eight minutes before being executed. And this being a superhero universe, what we actually learn is that uh, the Silver Agent was swept up by time travel agents and had years of adventures 
between the time he was going to be executed and the time he was returned to his cell. Um, it, to the point where he actually shows up sometime later, right after he was supposedly executed, and saves the city, and then vanishes, and then everyone goes, oh, shoot, we'd already executed him, basically. Uh, and the idea was he knew... Being a hero, being a noble figure, he knew he was going to die. It's a similar situation, essentially. Uh, but the fact that they, he he left this gap, which I understand is somewhat similar to what they did with uh, the Barry Allen Flash. They sort of left the door open that he could technically appear again through time travel, even though he's dead, famously. Um, that almost might be something they might try doing with Strange New Worlds. Not that specifically, I mean. But this is Star Trek. There's time travel. Uh, I almost wonder, what would they do? What if, uh, you know, um, uh, Pike becomes the guardian of time and space and starts being the guy who, who whose actual uh, recorded historical work is not that significant, but he's there to help uh, every other uh, historical character in the Trek universe find their uh, their way home. Maybe that, just a crazy yeah. suggestion. No, honestly, what I would, so spoilers for a comic book that ended a few years ago about toy robots, but at the end of More Than Meets the Eye, which then became uh, Transformers Lost Light, the ship basically gets duplicated and one half go home and live the rest of their lives, and um, one of the characters faces justice for his omnicidal crimes, and they get old, and eventually they end up in a semi-happy, but realistically bittersweet status quo. And the other duplicate of the ship ends up in a crazy new universe where they can go on keeping having adventures forever. So it's having their cake and eating it too. I would not be hugely upset if Strange New Worlds ends with the ship like being duplicated and one half can go <laughs> on to have the fates that we know that they do, that Pike can go on to um, beep once for yes and twice for no, and <laughs> Spock and Chapel can sort of age into the versions of them that we, in Spock's case, know and love, and in Chapel's case, know. Um, but that the duplicate ship, that the character arcs can go on in exactly the way that we would like to see them progress, that Spock and Chapel can find happiness together, that Pike can <laughs> be freed from this responsibility that he bears, that, um, that number one, can live a life unfettered by attitudes towards genetic engineering, or even if she ends up in an alternate universe, could drive some sort of revolution in how the Federation sees genetic engineering. That the idea of a, du a duplication whereby half of the characters stay tied to the continuity that we know, but the other half end up being able to see where the story goes in a way that suits this show rather than the franchise as a whole. I think I'd be happy with that. I reserve the right that if they do it and it's terrible to say that I thought it would be terrible all along, but right now <laughs> I would actually see that as an interesting way of being true to where this show is going while keeping it in continuity with the show as a whole. One of the few things I know about the second season of Strange New Worlds is that somehow, somehow, it is going to be one of the first real big Star Trek crossovers, and they are going to cross over with Lower Decks. I am not sure if you're aware of this, Douglas. I am. I'm so excited for it. I think, well, we've talked before about, like, how Lower Decks regards Star Trek, that it... When it makes fun of Star Trek, it is making fun of Star Trek from a place of intense affection for the show. Like what we do. That I think the two of us can say things about Star Trek that if it was coming from a non-Trekkie, I would regard as unmitigated contempt. 
But when Lower Decks pokes fun at the show, even serious problems with the show, it comes from a place of intense loyalty. And so I think a crossover with Strange New Worlds in particular, a show that is so traditional in some respects, I think is a really... I think it's a perfect fit of tones, and I think it's a perfect fit of how both shows regard their place within the franchise. Uh, yes, but there is the question of mechanically how on earth is this going to work? Oh, that. Not like. <laughs> well, we'll see. But it does almost suggest that there's going to be more time travel, and that maybe something like what I just suggested might happen—that we might see the. Uh, Strange New Worlds crew hopping around through time and visiting different people. Um, my understanding is that um, the original premise of Discovery was that it was going to be something like Fargo, that it was going to be a new... Uh, I think we've discussed this again. That Every every season is going to be a new um, uh, cat crew and a new timeline, and it was going to be a series of miniseries, essentially, uh, jumping through Trek history, which is why the series wasn't really built to be this uh, lasting prequel uh, and why they kind of ditched that eventually. Uh, it also explains why season two is essentially a big, long backdoor pilot for, <laughs> for Strange New Worlds. Um, but... Um, uh, I wonder if, and then, of course, they jump into the future in Discovery, but uh, part of me wonders if uh, they might not be doing something similar with Strange New Worlds uh, to get away from the prequel aspect, that they'll be uh, time jumping at some, <laughs> in some capacity. I don't know. Anyway, it's useless to speculate, but uh, there's, there's a number of different ways they could do it. And as I say, the, the show has impressively gotten itself out of um, what might be a bit of a straitjacket uh, already. So uh, I'm prepared to give it the benefit of the doubt for future uh, seasons uh, as far as it goes. Yeah. Uh, so Douglas, why don't we uh, quickly, sorry, you. No, no, no I, was, I was saying, yeah, in an enthusiastic sort of way. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so why don't we run down some of the stuff uh, we like and don't like about it? Uh, some of these other things you, it sounds like you really like Hemmler. I, my favorite thing about Star Trek Strange New Worlds is Hemmer the chief engineer. He's awesome. He's crotchety, but he's got a heart. Um, I never thought that we would see the um, Anar again. Anar, yes. Yep. Um, I think that bringing them back, and what's more, bringing them back with an actor who is legally blind, I think is a really, really interesting way to rediscover this interesting and obscure corner of Star Trek history. I think it's a really just a fantastic addition to what I think is an extremely strong cast. I, I I think that by far the best thing about the show is Hammer. But what makes him so good is that th this is a show that is really well cast and I think generally really well acted. Um, they have got an interesting set of characters and a clear sense of how they bounce off each other and how they interact with each other. I like the core ensemble on Discovery, but it is a surprisingly small core ensemble with a broader halo of characters like Detmer, who, at least as of season three, we really do not know much about, even though they show up week to week. Strange New Worlds has a larger core cast and a better sense of how all the pieces fit together and how you can get unusual and interesting sparks out of putting characters together in different combinations. I also... You've noted in the podcast episode ideas um, that you loved the much-loathed TOS season three style episode. Which was that? Is that the one where it's okay? Is that Spock and Muck, or is that um, the, no the no. fantasy one? It's 
the fantasy one. It's the Elysian Kingdom, I believe it's called. How um, dare people not like that? That was there awesome. Are, okay, the same. Uh, uh, quite a group of people who I spoke to who were saying, "Oh my gosh, this is really good." And again, uh, many of them were not huge Star Trek fans. Uh, were really, really, <laughs> they really didn't like that episode. Oh, this is stupid. This is the worst thing ever. Those uh, fools. I, I, <laughs> yes, and, and the thing that I love about this, so the reason I called it a, well, it's fairly straightforward. I called it a TOS Season 3 episode because it is a TOS Season 3 episode. And it's very interesting because we did an entire, well, not an entire episode, but it, we mentioned it at some length in uh, the Savage Curtain episode that we talked about, where we talked about uh, the formalism of Star Trek and the way it, uh, uh, like, it, the way it used the medium uh, including sometimes harkening back to TV's origins as sort of a filmed stage play rather than a short movie. Um, and um, uh, season three of Star Trek did this a lot, partly for budget reasons, because they slashed the budget. But there's quite a number of episodes, including my, as you know, my stealth favorite, um, uh, Spectre of the Gun, um, which uh, is literally them on what appears to be is basically a stage set of a western what, that doesn't try to look realistic. It is them uh, acting, literally acting out a stage play. Um, there's other episodes like The Empath. We mentioned a few of them, um, and that became a thing in uh, Star Trek season three, where there was this staginess to it. Uh, I really liked what they did there because it feels like they are harkening back. Maybe may, maybe it wasn't intentional, but it really felt like they were harkening back to that in a way. It was the idea of uh, we're all suddenly in a play. I, I don't know if I mentioned in that episode, but there's also the um, uh, Next Generation episode, I think it's called Frame of Mind, but I could be forgetting, where Riker is in a play, but he's also in an alien insa uh, insane asylum, uh, and he kind of keeps, forget he, his reality is breaking down, and he's kind of being convinced that, oh, no, no, you were never on a starship, you're just, you know, you're having mental issues, and you're here, and we're trying to help you, um, and, um, and the si same time he's starring in a stage, or he's in his memories of memories of being on uh, next generation uh, of the enterprise he's uh starring in a stage play directed by dr crusher and he keeps going back to that stage play which echoes the alien uh, uh insane asylum um so that's another one that kind of does that stagey uh, meta um what medium are we actually uh thing so uh, the elysian kingdom did that and i thought that was great uh just the literally like everyone in the enterprise suddenly pretending it was a giant stage play yep. um and they I, th I think it showed a real understanding of how star trek played around with that stuff again i say season three but they did it throughout its run um so i was real i, I really loved that aspect of it i think a lot of people felt like oh where's the if you've got a big sci-fi budget why aren't you gonna use it and it's like well that's not the point <laughs> they're they're doing it in that way there was anyway, a budget to... there it was they they put vines everywhere they, they would have had to visit <laughs> at least one garden center maybe two um, no, I'm, I'm, I realize that part of the premise of this show is that there's lots of different ways to enjoy and to make Star Trek and that there's no such thing as an objective value, but I love the Elysian kingdom and people who mm -hmm. didn't, I, I disagree with them strongly. Some of, no, these, I, I some thought, of these are my pals. Be careful. <laughs> I, but yes, I respect, yeah. I respect them. I do not share their view. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, I mean, the, the actors, especially Anson Mount, were clearly having such terrific fun with it. I, th mm -hmm. This goes back to why I think Strange New Worlds is the show that is such a perfect crossover with Lower Decks. 
in that it lacks some of the po-face sincerity of the... Oh, it's, it's a very sincere show. But I think in doing a TOS season three episode in a way that perfectly indicates why... That indicates that it understands why season three could be so ridiculous. And that it understands that not everything in Star Trek is to be taken 100% seriously. That you're not dealing with the original shows as sacred texts, but as TV that could sometimes be ridiculous and that didn't necessarily have to be told in an entirely straightforward and blank face sort of way. I think that that embrace of the fact that sometimes Star Trek can be extremely silly is a really refreshing thing to see from a modern Star Trek show and something that I think Lower Decks also does really well. I loved it. It, it was an interesting, what would TOS season three have been like had its concepts been matched by the technical skill to back them up and had they been embraced by the cast in the spirit that they ought to have been. Um, and to end with a really heartbreaking ending and to match, you know, that silliness with the willingness to rip out the audience's heartstrings. No, I, th- I thought it was... I, I like and respect your friends from what I've heard of them, <laughs> but I disagree with them on the Elysian Kingdom. <laughs> so we're getting, uh, yeah, so we're getting uh, getting along here. And so this is, I'm realizing there's lots and lots of stuff we'd like to talk about, uh, like to talk about here, uh, but we're getting up on an hour already. So uh, let's maybe jump uh, to a couple things here. Uh, the new Gorn, Douglas, you mentioned them in the notes here. Uh, what did you want to, what did you think of those? I saw some fan reaction online that making the Gorn into cut-price xenomorphs seemed cheap and lazy. Um, And I sort of see that. What we now know about the Gorn and about the planting eggs in living human hosts is disgusting. Um, Not disgusting on on a, you know, how dare you do that to our beloved rubber suit from 50 years ago, but just really (laughs) squeamish to think about. I... I don't mind it. it. They could very well have made new aliens to f- serve the role of the Gorn do in the show. At the same time, we really don't know anything about the Gorn. Other than that, 50 years ago, Captain Kirk fought a guy in a rubber suit who we now know, had he managed to kill Captain Kirk, would have laid eggs in him and then eaten him. Which adds a <laughs> chilling, macabre edge to arena that wasn't previously there. Um... <laughs> I I think it's uh, it is one of the relatively adventurous things about Strange New Worlds that has been willing to take a concept like the Gorn, who we've known of but not about for a long time, and to try to flesh them out in a way that is not entirely comfortable. I feel that they could have done it with other aliens. I don't think it had to be the Gorn. I don't mind that they chose the Gorn to fill this body horror role. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I feel like it was a, it was the other way around. I think they kind of went, well, we got to get the Gorn in there somewhere because they are a big, like they're literally in basically one episode and then they appear on Enterprise briefly. Uh, remember that in Enterprise, it was implied that they eventually joined the Federation actually. Um, but, um, which is fair enough. Most, uh, that's sort of the goal of Star Trek is to get everyone working together as part of the Federation. Uh, but the, um, um, yeah, so it was kind of a case of, well, we got the Gorn, we know so little about them, 
uh, let's make them scary and let's make them um, a big part of the show. And uh, I'm fine with that. I, I don't have a problem with them changing or not changing because, again, we didn't know that any of that was inaccurate. All we know is that they're big dinosaur bug people. Uh, that's literally all we knew about them up to this point and that they were mindlessly, well, not mindlessly, but extremely aggressive. Um, and uh, that they left a, a trail of uh, destruction in their wake wherever they went. Um, so this is not in any way, I think, uh, out of sync with them. I just wish we'd come up with something a little better than, as you say, cut price xenomorphs. Um, the literal, I, laying eggs in them is, you know, that is a thing aliens, uh, not aliens, uh, insects do on Earth. It's a thing that makes sense as an, al as a, uh, an alien characteristic, as it were. Uh, although possibly not as a sentient alien characteristic, but again, you, I guess you can argue they're they're sort of semi mindless. That maybe they're a hive mind. Maybe they maybe the individuals are not that smart, but there's a queen somewhere, something like that, uh, which also wouldn't be hugely original. But you know, let's 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 say there's different ways. I'd like to see them uh, build on the Gorn and make them really unique. Uh, biologically but also culturally uh going forward i don't want to see them just be used as well we need we want to do an alien this week so let's bring in the gorn um <clears throat> that's my only issue with it per se uh there's still room to maneuver uh, but i'd like to see them be a little more unique than just that um and then the other thing uh that's a big part of the show is uh the genetic engineering aspect which affects two of the characters actually and um but especially unich and riley um and uh yeah like the the federation stigmatizes it and it has a real has a bit of a hang up about it which i i would argue makes sense uh but possibly is a bit of a uh a, an achilles heel for the federation's uh aspects ideas of tolerance um what do you think douglas i don't know i We know from Enterprise that Denobulans do genetic engineering as a relatively commonplace thing and that that reflects who they are and who their history is. It is a bit disappointing that after Phlox was, I think, probably the character on Enterprise who worked most consistently well, that on what we now know, Denobulans, at least as they were in Enterprise, would not fit particularly comfortably into a federation that not just amongst humans, but as a general principle prohibits genetic engineering based upon the events that occurred on Earth in the 1990s. As we well remember from our own traumatic youth <laughs> in the eugenics wars. Um, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll never forget my horrific youth from the ages of two till six in the service of Khan and his gene warriors. Um, that having been said, I, I think it is an interesting angle on Una. I am interested to see where it, where they are going with this. I am troubled by the fact that, as you have said, it's a prequel, and they're not going to be able to find a way of changing Federation attitudes in general, that either she's going to get some sort of special dispensation that just doesn't affect the status quo in any way, or they are going to find some way of squaring it away in the same way that Discovery put section 31 and the spore drive in the Armand Tamsarian category of this shall never be mentioned again under pain of torture. So whether they end up with a status quo that's just for Una or end up with a status quo of absolute secrecy that doesn't affect anything, 
I don't think either of those would be particularly satisfying ways of sticking the landing, and so I'm quite cautious of it on that front. So I'm sceptical, but I'm happy to wait and see. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, we do remember, and, and again, as with a number of things like Section 31, Deep Space Nine did actually open this door uh, with uh, Dr. Bashir, the storyline there that he was genetically engineered and that there was actually a prohibition on him in the Federation, which went so far not just to say the obvious thing of, well, genetic engineering is illegal within the Federation, which seems fair enough to a degree. I mean, whether you can argue about it as a, you know, as a real world philosophical precept, but you know, in the world of Star Trek, it's not some kind of onerous thing to say, yeah, genetic engineering is outlawed because of what we've gone through in the past. Um, and as a, as you kind of mentioned, it does make everything a little human-centric as well. Uh, <laughs> but you have to imagine that maybe there were similar issues on other worlds and they had uh, the same problem, they didn't want to deal with it. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it does uh, raise an issue that, and this is actually an issue with the Deep Space Nine episode as well, that... Uh, Bashir was actually going to be asked to leave Starfleet, apparently, because he was genetically engineered, and they were able to give him a special dispensation, as you say. Um, which does actually speak to... Uh, that That was perhaps going a bit, a bit above and beyond. And I do... Again, I get the issue of, like, well, we don't want another Khan rising to power. Uh, but, you know, you've got a guy who has this great track record um, of, of being a, a, a Starfleet officer and being very... Uh, very uh notable and and i think to turn around and say well you could be drummed out of starfleet for this reason uh and i do like that there is like a a, a plausible reason for it all and that they've somewhat grounded it in something you can say yeah I, I i can see why they'd be against it. it's not just prejudice you know it's not just human uh i mean it is but it's not it's not an irrational prejudice i suppose which of course raises some other issues if you're going to talk about it. but they don't play it as prejudice they play it as a you know, okay, there's a pragmatic reason why we cannot do this thing, whether it's right or wrong, and there are actual arguments to that case. Um, so we'll see where it plays. And there's just a very interesting thing that they can explore. I'm I'm very optimistic that they'll explore it in interesting ways. Uh, it's worth noting that, um, of course, Lan is um, literally Khan's descendant, uh, which is, I'm not crazy about making her, like, making her the descendant of one of the genetic Superman, okay, making her literally Khan's descendant is a little bit too... Uh, tying every, shrinking the world a bit more than I particularly care for. Uh, but that would mean, by definition, she'd be genetically enhanced. So there is a bit of a question mark there, like, okay, wait a minute, you are genetically enhanced going back multiple generations. You're allowed in Starfleet, but somebody who's been genetically enhanced at, in the womb is not, and that's a bad thing. And anyway, uh, it... it it's something to explore, certainly. It's an interesting thing to chew over, and I, I, I'm not going to badmouth it as a bad thing, but it does uh, it does raise a lot of interesting issues in that regard. Um, so we'll see where it goes. We'll, again, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, for sure. Yeah, uh, I think they've uh, earned that, which is not something that I would say, potentially, about um, some of the wilder swings from the other contemporary Star Trek series. <laughs> they, they've earned the ability to believe that if they take a big swing there is a good chance they're going to actually hit the ball yeah absolutely uh so we're over an hour here so let's uh jump to sort of the final topic i think which is um the, the finale quality of mercury uh which touches on a number of different things i think that we'd like to talk about um and um uh the way uh things work in that regard in terms of 
the differences between Quality of Mercy and Balance of Terror. Uh, we talked about it a little, but what did you think about that, Douglas? I thought it was a really interesting stylistic idea, the idea of taking an old episode and placing a new spin on it. Or, well, that... <sighs> Another reason why I think it's going to work particularly well with Lower Decks is when they said explicitly at the beginning of the episode, sometimes you can just take in le- take leftovers, put in some new spices, and voila, a new dish. And that level of explicit fourth wall breaking tonight on Star Trek, we're going to put an old episode in the microwave for a bit and we're going to give it to you as dinner. I, It's not something that Star Trek has done an enormous amount. The closest... Um, prior analogy would be Trials and Tribulations, which is not really like any other episode. The idea of let's do a story in the margins of or as a commentary on a previous episode is a... I'm not sure how I'd feel about it as an ongoing thing. I think that there are limits to how much microwaving any given Star Trek episode can take, but I'm really glad they gave it a try and even used it as a way to say something interesting about the differences between Pike and Kirk, that Pike has an essential caution and an essential... um, an essential inclination towards diplomacy that on the show's telling Kirk does not. But that obviously... Yeah, leads, that's, yeah, that is really... Sorry to jump in. But, that is really interesting that they defined their hero as the guy who is... Maybe this is a little... Uh, broad but he's less interesting than kirk essentially they said he's the boring guy uh, kirk's the exciting guy <laughs> but here's our hero he's the boring guy which is an interesting tack to take but also could be potential sorry boring isn't right but he's the more cautious and he's the more he's the guy he's the hank hill of the star trek universe <laughs> who shows up and does the work every day yes uh, that's a really interesting take tack to take and i'd like to see them indulge that more going forward anyway continue no 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 i i, I mean yeah, boring's maybe a harsh way of putting it. That Pike is the guy who looks before he leaps. And Kirk is in some sense more driven by instinct and more given driven by gut reactions. That Pike... Yeah, I like the idea of Pike as being the guy who shows up and does the work, whereas Kirk has that essential daring to him. The difficulty with that, I think, is that for Kirk to work as a character, you need an actor who has that... I mean, I hate to say this because it's completely ineffable. A character who has that twinkle in his eye and a character who is able to carry off that... No, Kirk's not Zap Brannigan, although you can probably see Zap Brannigan on a clear day from Kirk. He's not Zap Brannigan. He's not a renegade. He's not Mm -hmm. um, Captain Jack. But he needs to have that essential joy de vivre and that twinkle in his eye, or at least to be able to play someone who really inhabits and lives in the moment to some extent, which I think Shatner could def- Shatner definitely did, I think was one of the defining features of Pine and is not something that I necessarily immediately got from the new guy. What do you think of the new Kirk, Adam? I, I, I'm afraid I have to disagree. Now, I'm going to... Paul Wesley, who's the actor, is now playing Kirk. Uh, I will absolutely give him time. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they cast him for a reason. Uh, I wasn't enormously uh, impressed with um, uh, Spock, uh, new Spock, um, at when he was first when he first appeared. It doesn't help that for some reason they chose to give him a beard and make him look completely different than Leonard Nimoy in Discovery. Uh, but... Um, He's he's definitely 
gotten there i think i'm still i've i still have a thing about people playing vulcans where leonard nimoy and mark leonard actually and to a certain extent um some of the other actors like um uh uh paul uh, uh paul, paul russ the guy on voyager tim russ. Tuvok. Ah, tim russ tim russ tim russ yeah um he uh, he had a bit of it uh, but there was a sort of a gentle sadness to nimoy that i don't think anyone else has quite nailed a lot they tend to make them more just sort of priggish and uptight and i think um I, I think that's been missing from a lot of vulcan portrayals but that's still uh i think one of their active notes in uh the version of uh spock on uh strange new worlds is that uh, he's um uh autistic he's coded as autistic i think that was actually something they're explicitly going with at least well not explicitly on screen but explicitly for the acting uh cues um, so I'll give, I would definitely give him a chance, but you're right. I didn't feel like he had this immense magnetism and movie star charisma that he needed out of the gate. Uh, you could chalk it up to nervousness. You could chalk it up to, uh, maybe it wasn't the best venue for him in that particular story. Uh, I imagine he's going to show up again, which I feel different. Putting aside the actor, I, I'm not sure we need to keep seeing Kirk show up and and uh, <laughs> out class out, out dazzle Pike every uh, every other week wouldn't be a particularly good move uh, from a plot point of view. I think Anson Mount tends to command the screen well enough, but um, you know, just in by definition, Kirk's got to be the guy who you know comes in with crazy plans and and pulls them off. Uh, as you say, he's not he's he's a rogue, but not within constraints and i think um actually this ties into one of my big theories about starfleet that i just wanted to throw out quickly which is um uh they um we have all this discussion over as in a military as a scientific organization so forth and i think it might be best understood as kind of a a giant floating militia uh as in the old in the early uh united in the early american sense uh like before they had a standing army Instead, they had sort of a, a community would send its fighters to rally together and get stuff done uh, if there was a military. Uh, but the rest of the time, they'd go home and they'd do the the colonialism that they needed to do. <laughs> like, And they'd, they'd be doing their jobs. I think that might be a good way to think of Star Trek because they don't get... they Of course, if there's a war, they call out all ships to come and fight. Uh, maybe a Dunkirk situation, too, if you like. Uh, but they're not necessarily designed as military vessels and and within that you have the idea that the captain is pretty much the 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 god of his little domain um he gets yes he has to answer to starfleet command you can get court-martialed there are absolutely limits on what he can do but it does make a certain amount of sense that if you're on the edge of the frontier you're going to have to make a lot of decisions that you might not even have to answer for for months um and that you have to be able to have a certain amount of leeway uh, in what you can do. Um, you have to be carefully trained to have good morals, I think, and to be a, a great leader of men, which is what, which is something they certainly emphasize in Star Trek, that you need to have what it takes to be a captain. Uh, but, um, yeah, the aspect of him just being a, uh, you know, I, I think that it's fair to say that Star Tra- uh, Starfleet captains and crews are quite autonomous in a way. And that's what, that's kind of what we're seeing here. You've got the Pike uh, Enterprise versus the the Kirk uh, it was what the Farragut was Kirk's uh, ship. I th- think in this it version? was the Farragut, yeah, which I think might have yeah. been the ship that he'd served on as a lieutenant in the original series from they did, Obsession yeah. or something like that. Yeah, they did establish that uh, that that was his earlier posting, and then he rose through the ranks really fast and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so that, that's just really uh, that's that's interesting in 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 that regard. Um, 
uh, what else was I going to say? Um, but yeah, I, 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 I do feel like there were some shifts between what Balance of Terror stood for as an episode. Balance of Terror is one of the great Star Trek episodes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and um, yeah, I feel like while it, this was, this honored the continuity of Star Trek, it might have missed some of the things of Balance of Terror. I was mentioning uh, Mark Leonard, and of course he played the Romulan commander in Balance of Terror, as well as playing Spock's dad eventually. Uh, and um, part of the point is that he's a noble opponent. He's an, he's a, an honorable enemy, even though they're at odds with each other. And, and that, you know, at the end of the day, it's war that makes enemies not... Na- anything in their nature i thought that equality of mercy leaned a bit too far on the the romulans being kind of sinister even as they wrote uh the romulan commander that uh, pike was dealing with as an honorable guy as a decent person who could be reasoned with mm. and everything uh the episode does kind of lean towards well these romulans are bad guys and peace is almost like on humans and it's because those romulans are so unreasonable that peace has to be made bounds of terror suggested that no that there are good people on both sides and you can make it and i feel like that was undermined a bit with quality quality of mercy wouldn't you say that's a really interesting point i hadn't thought that but i yeah you've definitely convinced me i think you're absolutely <laughs> right and I, it's it and that is so even though i think the actor who plays the romulan commander in Equality of Mercy does such a good job of evoking Mark Leonard, not just in his dialogue, much of which is lifted verbatim from Balance of Terror, but even in his mannerisms. I think he's clearly studied and is evoking the performance. But I think it does put a really, really different spin on it to go from him being, in some sense, representative of Romulans to him being an outlier who is betrayed and destroyed by his own side in their relentless drive for war. It's a very different story. And I, yeah, it's it's a message that is a lot more uncomfortable than Balance of Terror. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that's a really, really, really good point, which I suppose goes to, if you are going to put something in the microwave and put some new spices in it, there is a possibility that you, that the meal that you get isn't going to taste quite as nice as the one that you had 50 years ago waiting for, patiently in the fridge. Um, <laughs> we are... Absolutely. An hour and a quarter in. I know that we'd said what we'd like to see from Strange New World Season 2 as our next topic. I reckon that's something that we can discuss in a later episode when we talk about the state of Star Trek as a whole. I, Unless there's anything else you'd like to raise, I think I've, I, I think I've said my piece on a show that I've really enjoyed. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end it. Um, I, you know, so uh, it was uh, a show that surpassed expectations, uh, and and uh, you know that they they have earned the benefit of the doubt, uh, even as we have these concerns and, and issues that we've been throwing in there. Uh, but we're we're very eager to see where it goes with uh, season two. We've thrown out some of our wacky ideas for where it might go, um, and uh, so I think that's uh, definitely something. Um, that uh, that uh, we'll be looking for, but I'm I'm really glad you enjoyed it, Douglas, and I'm really glad that there is uh, you know a show of this uh, quality right now in live action Star Trek, and I hope uh, that can sort of be the guiding star for Star Trek uh, going forward. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I'll say uh, to everyone out there in the universe, um, live long and prosper. And then whatever the thing I say next is. <laughs> And I'll see you on the other side.